0: Our Bible passage today is from John chapter 20, verses 10 to 18. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent down over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to Mary, she said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her.
1: Uh, Amen. Um, As I prayed about what our next uh, sermon series could be on, uh, I thought it'd be nice to reflect more On the Easter event, Um, I think I'm usually pretty good about the lead up to Good Friday and Easter. But once Easter Sunday completes, uh, I don't think I spend enough time uh, on this transformative event. But uh, I think you'd agree with me when I say, don't we need the resurrection power uh, on a daily basis? Uh, We can all too quickly feel uh, cheerless, lifeless, even hopeless. How can we abide longer uh, in the Easter mindset? Uh, to that end, uh, I plan to devote three messages to three distinct resurrection appearances of Jesus to his followers uh, found in uh, John 20, uh, verses 10 to 29. So the appearances uh, of Jesus uh, in John 20, if we can pop up the slide. Oh, there's a slide. Okay, Um Mary Magdalene, that's the what we're looking at today, uh, the disciples, uh, sons Thomas, and then uh, the third appearance was uh, to Thomas, as Peter uh, prayed about um, Jesus's conversation with Thomas, directed at Thomas, with the other disciples present. So these are the three appearances that I want to focus on, one each week. The main goal will be to explore how Easter changes our understanding of important Practices of the Christian life, uh, as well as as well as life experiences in uh, general. So, the slate of messages uh, starting today, April eighteenth, is uh, I'm calling it Easter Tears. That's our title today, and that's on uh, love. I want to talk about how the resurrection changes our understanding of love. And then next week, um, Easter Fears. Right, um, the disciples were afraid. Um, uh, despite Jesus' resurrection, until He appears to them, and He says, "Peace be with you," breathe the Holy Spirit on them, and then we'll conclude with uh, Easter scars, right—the scars on Jesus' hands and feet, uh, which He shows Thomas. Uh, so that's going to be about faith. Um, I, I'm hoping that each of these will will show us, right? We'll grow in love, peace, and faith. Yeah, so ending with how Thomas. Uh, went from doubt to whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not, till to uh, confessing my Lord, my God. So, for today's sermon, uh, let us uh, thematically consider uh, Mary's tears, right? Her Easter tears. Uh, they're quite noticeable in this passage. Verses 11, 13, and 15 all refer to her weeping or crying. So, we'll use it as a leitmotif to organize uh, the message. Uh, Why do we shed tears? Why do we cry? Uh, Of course, there's a whole host of emotional, uh, physiological, or even social reasons uh, why we do so. And and there's so much going on in our world. Um, And maybe our personal lives uh, to weep over. Um, for sermonic purposes, uh, I'll try to stick to some broad strokes um, at the risk of perhaps overgeneralizing the sources of our tears. So I want to kind of look at uh, our three sections in our passage. So uh, one main reason, I think, is we cry because we're full of sorrow or grief. We are mourning. right? And certainly the death of Jesus was something that caused Mary to cry. And then second section verses 13 to 14 uh, anger and frustration rage right uh, there's something that uh, maybe an ind- uh, even a holy indignation that arises within us when we see that things aren't changing for the better that there is evil that there is uh, the power of darkness and sometimes that uh, elicits or evokes um, this kind of response um, in in some of us. And then um, Mary's relief and joy when she learns, when she realizes that Jesus has indeed returned from the dead, right? That, I think, that beautiful exchange. Mary, Rabbani, right? That Her tears turn into tears of joy in that last few verses. So, Um, I hope that uh, I can share from uh, these three sections today of why the resurrection actually can help to dry our tears uh, when they flow. So first one, uh, one of the most familiar reasons uh, we shed tears uh, is because our hearts are broken by sorrow. Of the myriad causes of grief, bereavement uh, due to the death of a loved one, Uh, I think, can be considered paramount. Uh, The followers of Jesus had just witnessed the traumatic execution of their beloved Lord and Savior on the cruel and painful crucifix, the select instrument of the Roman government to punish capital crimes. Uh, The disciples' world had crumbled around them, reducing them uh, to uh, emotional shambles. Of all the followers of Jesus, uh, Mary uh, exemplified uh, what it meant to love, adore, and worship uh, the Lord Jesus. Uh, Actually, I think quite a bit of confusion exists on the exact identity of this particular Mary, who was a witness to the resurrection. Uh, John 20 verse 1 and later on here in verse 18, she's identified as Mary Magdalene. Right. Um, Luke's account tells us that uh, Jesus had exorcised seven demons uh, from her. Um, thereupon, Mary Magdalene became a follower and supporter of Jesus. But due to certain teachings in the Catholic Church um, by, um, I think the first was Pope Gregory the Great in the, seventh, in the sixth century, um, interpreters began to conflate mary magdalene with mary of bethany right mary of bethany is who uh the person who ed referenced in his opening prayer right the mary who sat at Jesus' feet while her sister martha was busy serving right and she is also the the, the two sisters are the uh, their their the the brother is lazarus who was raised uh, from the she's the one in john 12 who broke the alabaster jar of perfume and poured the spikenard, right, upon Jesus as an anointing, a special insight into Jesus's impending death. And so the Mary Magdalene, the Mary of Bethany, and also the woman who point, uh, poured perfume on Jesus, the sinful woman who poured perfume on Jesus' feet in Luke 7, right, in the Pharisee's house, uh, the Western church began to see that as one individual. But the Eastern church in, in greece in in constantinople um the greek orthodox church uh, taught that they were three distinct independent uh, persons not sure um, but in any event i think the devotion uh, the commitment love the love they had for their lord kind of it, it's it's evidence, right it's, it's it's very apparent and it's this love which prompts um, Mary Magdalene to come early on Easter morning to venerate the tomb of the deceased Jesus. Uh, More than that, it causes her to linger and grieve um, at the graveside. Uh, She is distraught because of the body of the Lord is missing. So it went beyond just kind of duty and respect. Her whole kind of sense of well-being was wrapped up in the honor and security that was due her holy teacher. Uh, While the disciples, even the disciples, puzzled as they were by the empty tomb, they returned to their homes, but Mary just couldn't pull away. She just couldn't depart from the scene. Nothing else mattered uh, to her. She was, that was what love represented. That's the devotion and commitment that she had to the son of God. Yeah, death, (laughs) death. Death can devastate love. Death can end, can sever relationships, even the strongest of them. I think it's fitting to lament the end of the mutuality of love. Even as we go through that, even though death is so inevitable, the most inevitable thing of them all, and so natural, it happens all the time, it happens to everybody, there's something about death that seems so unnatural it seems like this is an injustice, right? We feel robbed when someone dies. Death in its swiftness, right? We know it's coming, but when it comes, we're all surprised. We're all like, how did that happen? We are disturbed not only by death's pain, but by the fact that death seems to conquer all in the end, especially in terms of its finality. And so, I think death becomes like a bewildering tragedy uh, to us. We feel wrong. We feel injured. Uh, There there seems to be something terribly wrong with a world where death can permanently extinguish love. And the injury felt is greater the more beloved the victim. Moral outrage seems to pulsate when someone we love dies. Something within us cries out for continuity beyond the grave. Of course, um, death simply ignores all of our questions and even our indignation. Uh, At least it did until Easter Sunday. Uh, That is when Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Love overcame death. The love of God overcame the power of death. Uh, The love of God proved to be the most powerful force in the universe. Jesus came back to the ones he loved, and it was a game changer. All of our inklings that love was the greatest thing, however imperfect we understand love, uh, was true all along. The desire for love, the impulse to love others, uh, the satisfaction that comes from receiving genuine love, The sense of sadness and emptiness when we are lovelorn. And pretty much everything we thought about the centrality of love was confirmed. Especially when it came to divine love. That God was indeed committed to us. God's love could survive anything. Jesus promised that he would never leave or forsake us. God is love. Indeed, the truth of that is driven home uh, through the resurrection. So I think the resurrection, uh, in a practical sense, it allows us, it frees us or allows us, empowers us to love freely and fully, either once again or to continue what we have. It validates Love as the most important experience uh, in life. Uh, now, not without its pitfalls, right? We understand the risks. We understand, at least in human love, the changes, sometimes uh, situations. But you know, death was like a major precipice. It was like a, a, a like a sheer cliff that we we understood that you know love is over when we die. That is no longer true. Amen. Yeah. So we can invest in love relationship. In God's kingdom, love surpasses uh, death. We can invest in loving God and being loved by him. We can invest in loving others, especially in loving God's people. Heavenly union or reunion is a promise that will be actualized. The resurrection guarantees it. Now, even as I say it, I feel like I got to put some conditional aspects of it, right? Because in the realm of love, I think it's almost like uh, self-contradictory to say that you can guarantee love. By definition, love is always a free choice. Love has to be, each time, rechosen. It has to be freely given. It has to be renewed. Right? So I feel like without the possibility of not loving, it's not really real love. But what God does, I think, is to the fullest extent possible, he guarantees that he will love us, that his love is trustworthy, that his love will never fail us. You know, uh, as we've been doing the book of Numbers uh, in our Bible studies, and uh, we were, uh, some of the groups are going at a different pace, but um, I think at the connect one, uh, I was, this past time was trying to compare the first and second generations of the Israelites, uh, the ones that the first generation, seeing all the miracles in Egypt, crossing the red sea, hearing the, uh, receiving the law, but then refusing to obey God, not trust God. And then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and, You know, God disinherited them. All of them died without entering the promised land. The second generation, uh, they were either too young to rebel uh, at first, and then to, or they were born during the forty years of wandering. Right? They uh, did um, get to go in. They were the ones who took possession of the promised land, right, under the new leader Joshua. So, uh, we, we were talking or thinking through what is the difference why was the first generation so distrustful of God, whereas the second generation, right, even though they saw a lot of problems, even though it was hard, they made it all the way through, right? We, we kind of reflected on that. And, and and some really good reasons, I think, were proffered by uh, the brothers and sisters in the Bible study, and, and I offered some. But I, I guess like it came back down to me, in my mind, again and again, of, how in the, in the second generation, even though things were so hard, ups and downs, people being punished, you know, uh, battles, uh, lack of, uh, you know, always it seems like they were like hungry and thirsty, right? They were nomadic. Even despite all the travails that they went through, the one thing that, the one constant they had was that God was always there. They saw his presence through the pillar and the cloud. They saw it through what Moses did, right? They saw it in in the glory, demonstration of his glory, et cetera, et cetera. You know, God, you know, punishing them or God supporting them through so many different ways. God uh, showed that he was there for them, no matter how faithless, how rebellious, how disobedient they were. Uh, And not to excuse the first generation, even though in in my mind they experienced a much greater sense of the miraculous and of the powerful, right? Some of the the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, that was the most outstanding miracle ever, right, up to that time. But I think one of the reasons why they struggled was because uh, for so many years, you know, they had cried out to God. And it took God 400 years to raise Moses and send him to deliver them. And to me, the absence, the gap, the sense of where is God? How come he's not answering my prayers? In the sense that he wasn't always there. He was, but in terms of his revelation, in terms of what He, his purpose and, and timeline, it wasn't as uh, apparent. It wasn't as visible as it was for the second generation. I think what, uh, you know, the return of jesus from the dead right this kind of this last uh the biggest and largest and 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 the last bastion of the enemy right The, the fact that jesus was no longer there or god was no longer there that was totally overcome by the resurrection jesus is now always here now through the holy spirit that he sent we can experience god's presence 24 7 right so we can be like the third generation, right? Even one, a deeper iteration of what, you know, having God there all the time uh, is like, even through death, even over uh, death. Right? That's what I was thinking about. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen, it's, it's the older show, but uh, it, it's, uh, I was thinking about it, um, the uh, television program, um, Parenthood know it's about this kind of big family where there's a lot of problems and and a lot of like difficulties and and they address a lot of like social issues and um there's a real good stuff about the autism spectrum and and stuff but the the running theme is this family fights they get mad at each other they they argue but they're always there for each other right so it's a you know grand- grandparents seniors and then four adult children with families and then like 10 grandchildren right and there's this one family that decides to adopt I think eight or not a 10 year old boy an older boy and um, he's the, the boy is so uh, distrusting right he's so he's been hurt so much right he's been uh, like uh, I think his mother w- was in incarcerated or something and so it takes him forever to kind of make the connection with him. And they're not sure if they love him. He's not, you know, sure if they love him, if he loves them, right? And their sibling rivalry its just, you know, the whole gamut of, of kind of you, you, what you might expect. But then finally, right, the process gets to the point where they're able to legally adopt him, right? And that's one of the best scenes in the whole show because the whole clan, like all the aunts and uncles and the grandparents and all the other cousins, like, 25, 30 of them crowd into uh, the judge's chambers and they express this commitment that they will be there for Victor, right? The adoptee. And his demeanor, his heart, his attitude changes like dramatically because he is now secure that he is the child of Julia and Joel, right? Yeah, he becomes one of their family because now it's for certain, right, at least humanly possible, at least in terms of this family, this clan, that they are committed uh, to him. And I want to say that that's what the resurrection takes to like uh, an infinite level, right? That as far as it can be guaranteed, that love of the love of God will be there for us. That's what the resurrection Uh, displays. That's what it validates. That's what it drives home. Uh, Let's move on now to our next source of tears, anger, rage, frustration. Um, I don't think I personally emote in this manner, but I've seen it displayed thusly, uh, particularly by people who are committed to an important cause Uh, in our day of uh, racial injustice and many other wrongs that are being perpetrated. The lack of rectification or sometimes the persistent apathy of people in general can be rather distressing. Um, In our passage, I am inferring that Mary's grief was not only caused by sadness over Jesus' death, but also by the indignity of his missing body. That's why she's so focused on retrieving the body of Jesus wherever it had been taken. She's distraught because she couldn't even pay her last respects. It was the ultimate insult uh, added to injury. Uh, It'd be a cruelty visited upon mourners to either misplace the corpse of the deceased or allow grave robbers from desecrating the body. Uh, This was not uncommon at the time, grave robbing. Usually artifacts or other valuables that might be interred with the deceased were subject to theft. But who would do such a thing to uh, such an admirable and beloved teacher? I remember my first uh, or second year of uh, law practice uh, I was helping out in a case it wasn't my case but the huge case involving uh, like a, a bunch of f- funeral homes and the allegation against them was that uh, they had um, commingled uh, remains so uh, I think it's it's expensive to you know cremate uh, about you know, a lot of resources go in and I think these funeral homes were accused of putting in several corpses into one burning chamber to <laughs> save money right and and you know the remains you know i guess they thought no one would find out but apparently did and it was the, the damages sought were very very high right and not only because of the, the uh, intentionality of what they did and then but also, they were seeking a lot of emotional distress. I think treble damages, the technical term, was, was being evoked. Uh, and I, I, didn't, um, I didn't stay on the case that long. It was just kind of I filled in for something, a deposition or something. But <laughs> you could tell, right, how, how terrible that is to desecrate a, a body, especially to the grieving uh, family. Um, you know, Mary might have been uh, very upset by the lack of respect shown to Jesus Um, but you know sometimes even in our best efforts um, to get things right or make things right things don't get righted uh, in our time and how can we not burst inside when uh, so many terrible things uh, happen and I'm wondering if this contributed to Mary's tears But Jesus' return from the grave redresses the greatest travesty of them all. The blameless, sinless, holy Son of God suffered the cursed death of a wretched criminal. But by bringing him back, by Jesus showing that Jesus was not guilty uh, personally uh, for his sins, but vicariously for our sins, Jesus, uh, or God was uh, showing us that Jesus was actually. in the right, God approved of what Jesus said and did by raising him from the dead. To allow Jesus, the guilty verdict to stand against Jesus, would it be another ultimate injustice? So God raised him from the grave to show what, show that uh, justice will uh, be meted out. It will ultimately be done. I yeah. Arguably, you might even cite the resurrection as kind of a model of what is to come. I, you know, I always talk about what theologians call Jesus' resurrection as being a prolepsis, the inbreaking of the future into the present time. Right? And, and I feel like here, Jesus is writing of the wrongs, uh, the, the wrongness of his death. That, uh, there, this, this is like a prolepsis. It's an example of what future reckoning will be like. Real justice is not forgotten. It is only held in abeyance until God's time and purpose uh, are consummated. So we should keep doing the right. We should press on, even if it's hard to see. We should push for justice, even when there is no reward, or to the contrary, there is major antagonism. Our tears might be shed, but we have to keep fighting for what is right. Uh, We should trust the God who rectified Jesus's situation will one day correct whatever needs uh, to be Uh, so uh, let me finish up the we talked about uh, uh, sorrow and grief uh, anger frustration let me finish with uh, the last source of tears to cover today and that is of relief and joy you know, Mary is so bent on seeing the body or finding the body. She barely acknowledges the angels. <laughs> angels were like chopped liver here, right? Uh, who ask her about uh, her tears from within the tomb. When she sees the man, she forget. you know, the man she assumes is a gardener. Uh, she forgets the angels and she uh, she turns to this man who turns out to be Jesus, but she can't recognize Jesus uh, even when he begins to converse with her. Yeah, Interestingly, um, Jesus asks Mary, why are you crying? The angels ask the same question, right? It actually uh, sounds to me a little obtuse. Why would you make, why would somebody be crying at at a tomb, right? At at a graveside. Um, And I think she could have provided a rather sharp rejoinder or at least uh, answer uh, like Mona does when I ask a dumb question. Why do you think I'm crying? (laughs) We don't see that. Mary is like really, you know, just just trying to find uh, Jesus's, Body, right. In a sense, I feel like Jesus is the only person qualified to ask this. Like sometimes when you try to comfort somebody who's grieving, uh, it 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 can be received, you know, poorly. It can be offensive, but only Jesus gets to ask, "Why are you crying?" Because uh, he uh, holds the answer. Right. He's the one that uh, has a solution uh, to our grief, to our sadness. He had been to hell and back so that Mary and all his other sheep would no longer need uh, to weep. The the resurrection, I would uh, submit, obviates tears, or at least a sad kind. Gandalf observes that not all tears are evil in Lord of the Rings. Uh, Easter tears can actually be tears of relief and joy. I think that's Mary's story or testimony. Among all the voices that hail Jesus' triumph in the resurrection, no voice appealed to him like the one of the voice of weeping in the garden, right? So the first appearance of the risen Lord was given to Mary of all people. I think for no other reason that she needed him most. She needed him first. And in this exchange, I feel like uh, her tears of sorrow... Uh, were displaced by tears of joy, right? So from the the, the the lowest point, from her rock bottom, she is transported to the highest uh, exaltation. Another movie reference, I've talked about this before, but the uh, movie Mr. Holland's Opus, right, is, is really good, I think, right? It's about a Midwestern town uh, music teacher who has grand ambitions as a young man, he wants to write the Great American Symphony become rich and famous but, you know, he has to make ends meet and he becomes a music teacher at a local high school and for 30 years he toils away through you know all these kinds of never writes a symphony. Uh, just tries to you know help students um, appreciate music and there's a lot of great scenes in it but the final scene of course is its climax where um, finally because of budget cuts the music program is cut is excised right and so he's forced into retirement basically and so it's, it's the last day or kind of last time he's at the school and and he's talking, jawing with some teachers about, about this. And they congratulate him on his retirement. But he says, it's not my retirement. It's, you know, I got cut, right? I didn't know I was expendable. And he's kind of like grousing about a sense of like, is my, was my life really worth anything? And he, he hears like voices from the auditorium. And he doesn't know what's going on. I think it's some sort of assembly. And, uh, you know, his son, is, it's, it's kind of an elaborate plan that they have to kind of keep him out of the loop. Because, all of this, so many of his previous students have gathered, you know, over the 30 years and uh, they bring him into the, auditorium. so it's a kind of a, a thank you, a celebration of his teaching career of his life. Right. And they play the symphony that is almost finished. And a lot of people there's like all these famous people. And, and it's just a very rousing speech that the mayor gives and at least the mayor or governor and, and, and also, uh, a rendition of, you know, his opus, his work, his, his great work, right, uh, and stuff. So, you know, you could see the man's face, Mr., As played by Richard dreyfus you could see his face go from bitterness and sadness and regret to elation, to deep satisfaction, you know, tears of joy. Tears of sorrow turns into tears of joy in the very place Right, Uh, where they were uh, generated. Yeah, I think that's kind of a a, a, a simple example of what you know Mary experienced in that moment of recognition. It's beautifully narrated, right? One word remade Mary's life, and that word turned out to be her name. Jesus called his sheep by name, Mary, and that changed everything. And her response is equally profound. Rabbanai, right? The Aramaic term. Uh, There's rab, which means master, right? Uh, Rabbi, which means my master, and then rabbanai means my great master. Right? So it's like both an uh, expression of respect, but also a personalization of it. Yeah. The theme of union, of reunion. Um, that's, I think, is going to define heaven. It's going to define what love is really going uh, to happen, right? And this theme of a joyful reunion is echoed by Jesus himself, right? So Mary tries to detain Jesus. She clings to his feet. And what does Jesus say? He goes, don't hold on to me. I have not yet returned to my father. So he's saying, I have to go and reunite with my father first. I need to go and do that because... You know, that's what I need. Right. That's that's the most important thing for me that the eternal fellowship had been broken because Jesus, the father, turned his face away from Jesus on the cross. Right. So that he could be punished for our sins. And Jesus needed that personal fellowship that this this purpose, I think, superseded all other priorities that the resurrection would engender. Uh, Let me close with Revelation 21, which talks about tears. Um, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I always thought this passage uh, means that tears will altogether be absent from heaven. And they might be, certainly the sorrowful and angry and self-pitiful ones. So those will all be rendered unnecessary in the resurrected reality. But for the first time, I think I wanted to hold out the possibility that that the joyful type of tears, they might still well up here and there. How can they not? There will be much to be thankful about. And when they do, perhaps those are the ones that Jesus, that, that God will wipe away from our eyes, right? Now, have you gone from that where when you're crying joyful tears and you wipe them out, you know, they, they stop, at least in, in my experience. Sometimes sorrowful bitterful tears, you can wipe them and just keep flowing, right? But of the joyful kind, right, that's what I think Easter ultimately represents. Let's come to God in a time of prayer. I don't know what the source of uh, our tears may be, maybe we don't have any. And that's what we're struggling with. But um, let's think about what Easter means, uh, how it can either um, staunch that flow or maybe cause it to flow in joy. Let's have a little bit of time of reflection.